0: Section 13 in Australasia. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Hirsch. The entire program of every tour the General made emphasizes so strongly his advocacy of hard work that one really hesitates to pick out any one campaign as more remarkable than another. What is, however, extraordinary in connection with one of his far away Australian journeys is our having letters which so much more than any others give particulars of his doings. I am resting tonight, and well I think my poor body has earned some kind of respite. Such a ten days' work I never did before of sheer hard work. How I have come through it! and come through so well, I cannot understand, except that God has indeed been my helper. Here is another sidelight on the General's own inner life which we get, by the way. We conceal, of course, the identity of the lady in question, except to say that it was a very distinguished hostess with whom he had occasion to spend some hours when travelling. It was perhaps the loveliest journey I ever had. I talked nearly all the time and, in fact, had no alternative. But I think I ought to have made a more desperate and definite attack on her soul than I did. She is a very intelligent and amiable lady, and I have no doubt I made an impression. Goodbye. Go on praying and believing for me. I want to be a flame of fire wherever I go. I thank God for the measure of love and power I have, but I must have more. I am pushing everybody around me up to this, the inward-burning love and zeal and purity. I wish our best men were more spiritual. Give my tenderest love to all. In each of the General's visits to Australia, there was much of the same character but from the letters to his children which he wrote on one of them, we can extract enough to give some idea of what he saw and felt in passing through those vast regions. What the reception at Melbourne would have been had it not been for the torrents of rain I cannot imagine. Although it was known that I could not get in before six or seven o'clock, there was a great mass of several thousand people waiting at three o'clock. As it was, we did not get into the exhibition building till ten, and a vast crowd had been sitting inside from five and stayed to hear me talk till ten forty-five. I had an immense meeting. They say five thousand were present on the Sunday morning, seven thousand in the afternoon, with as many more turned away. The opportunity here is immense beyond conception. The people are delightful, and the officers also. If they were my own sons and daughters, I don't see how either officers or soldiers could have been much more affectionate. How great was the strain of the meetings may be guessed from the following remarks as to the final one. I trembled as I rose you must understand that the hall down which i spoke is about four hundred to four hundred fifty feet long and on this occasion a partition about ten feet high was drawn across it some three hundred feet from the spot on which i stood so that my voice had to travel all through the entire length of the building before it met with any obstruction whilst behind me there was at least another seventy feet The press estimate the crowds at 10,000, but that is an exaggeration. There would be 7,000 at least. I had taken the precaution to send an officer to the far end to see how far he could or could not hear me, and he brought back word excellently. So I drove ahead, speaking over an hour and a half, and not losing the attention of my audience for a moment. Indeed, I felt I had the whole house from the moment I opened my lips. Of course, it was the greatest physical effort a long way that I ever made. And, considering that it was my seventh address in that dreadful building, and that I commenced with a bad throat, exhausted with the fatigues and miseries of the voyage, and that I had ceaselessly worked at smaller meetings, etc., all the four days, I do think it very wonderful how I went through it and I must attribute it to the direct holding up and strengthening of the dear lord himself on all hands I think a deep impression was made to god be the glory and to my poor constituents for whom I live and plead be the benefit I am tired this morning but shall get a little rest today and a little extra sleep in the train We leave for Bendigo at twelve o'clock, arriving at four for meeting tomorrow. We go to Geelong next day, coming back here on Friday morning, and leaving at five for Sydney, travelling all night and arriving there about noon on Saturday. You will get tired of hearing of this round of meetings and of the very echo of this enthusiasm, but you will, I am sure, rejoice. Not merely that the people of this new world have welcomed your father and general with such heartiness, but that there is for the army such an open door in these parts. That is, indeed, what lends such endless importance to the recital which we cannot help reporting ever and anon of the general's meeting in each country to which he went. It was not the mere coming together of crowds to listen to a speaker— but the enthusiastic acceptance and endorsement of a system, and of demands made by a perfect stranger in which he so delighted. The general never went anywhere merely to preach or lecture. All that he did in that way was always so combined with salvation campaigns that at every step he was really recruiting for the army. Hence his every movement, the reports of his journey, the conversations he held with all whom he met, everything told in the one great war and helped to create, more and more all over the world, this force of men, women, and children pledged to devote themselves to the service of Christ and of mankind. There is a very interesting account of a visit to a state school, especially as it shows the general's keenness to learn For the army anything possible. At ten o'clock I went by the request of Mrs. McLean, the lady with whom I was staying, to visit one of her state schools. I was met at the door by the managers and members of the board who conducted me through the building. There were over a thousand children in ten different classrooms. I was much interested in them and spoke in each room, so that I began the day with at least ten little sermons. I was very much struck with the singing of the children, rendered very effective with some corresponding action with the arms and feet, which gave life and vigor to the thing. I am satisfied that we might follow this plan out with very good effect in our army singing. The little that is done is always appreciated. And so, whilst the secular Australian schools got some little gleam of the heavenly light, The aged general saw and passed on to all his world, a valuable suggestion that has since been taken up and acted upon everywhere in our children's meetings and demonstrations. And then he passes at once to quite another department of his activities. He always exercised the same care in every country, which we have already described as to England, to ensure the careful settlement of all property acquired for the army so that it may be as nearly as possible, made certain that nothing given to the one army should ever be removed out of the control of its central authority. How much of time and care this has demanded will be readily understood by those who have any experience in property matters and who know how widely laws and legal issues differ in different countries. I had an interview with Mr. Maddox, our solicitor out here a very nice fellow indeed and i should think capable withal he seems to grasp the idea of the army government and to be anxious to cooperate with us in such a settlement of our property as will be in harmony with it only by means of many such interviews and all the care they represent was it possible under the laws of such thoroughly democratic states to leave the local holders of authority under the general's complete freedom of aggressive action, and yet to secure that everything they acquired with the army's funds should remain for all time at the disposal, for the army only, of a general with his office at the other side of the world. And then we go on to the journey during which he was hoping to get some extra sleep, At twelve, left for Bendigo, arriving about four o'clock. Was very weary on the journey and had to turn out two or three times to address the crowds waiting to listen to me on station platforms. Bendigo is a town of some thirty thousand people, entirely made and sustained by the gold-digging industry. An immense amount of the precious metal has been taken here, and sufficient is being secured still to make it a paying concern, although the miners have to go to a considerable depth in order to secure the quartz. We had a public reception, and they had made a general holiday of it in the place. People must have come in from miles around to help make up such a crowd. They pulled up at a splendid fountain in the center of the town intending to separate with three cheers for the general. But I could not withstand the temptation, and made quite a little sermon about saving their souls and serving God. It is this interest both in the everyday occupations and resources of the people, and of the tours they made which, joined with all his intense concern about the soul, constituted the general and all who truly follow him the true brethren of all mankind it must ever be remembered to the credit of australia that its leading men were the first to recognize this characteristic of our officers and to lend them all the influence of their public as well as private countenance and sympathy it is this fact which makes it a permanent pleasure to record their kindnesses to the general came on to melbourne on my way to sydney met a body of representative men to lunch amongst them sir james McBain, president of the upper chamber mr deacon an ex-cabinet minister a very nice fellow indeed a man who appears to me to have more capacity than anyone i have yet met in the colonies he made a speech and at the close drew me on one side and said he wanted to do something for us, and if I could only tell him what it should be on my return to Melbourne, he would be very glad to do it. I am sure he is prepared to be a good friend. He is a coming prime minister, I should think. The general had no idea then that all Australasia would so soon be united into one commonwealth much less that Mr. Deacon would, for so many of the next ten years, be premier of the whole. But a remark he once made respecting the reported skepticism of some highly placed colonials might be made with regard, alas, to many statesmen of Christian lands nowadays, and we cannot but see in that fact, and in the friendliness of so many such persons with us, a token of the meaning both of the skepticism and the army's position. In how many instances have men, moving in influential circles, met with a Christianity manifestly formal and carrying with it no impress of reality? How natural for them to sink into skepticism! But the moment they encounter men who convince them instantly that they believe the Bible they carry, skepticism retires in favor of joyous surprise and without any desire to discuss doctrines they become our lifelong friends the general's ability in securing the assistance of all sorts of men including those whose religious opinions widely differed from his own or who had got none at all was remarkable When reproached, as he was sometimes, for taking the money even of sporting men, he would always say that he only regretted that he had not got a larger amount, and that he reckoned the tears of the poor creatures that would be relieved would wash the money clean enough in the sight of God for it to be acceptable in his sight. Met Mr. Blank he is interested in our maternity work and promised some time back to assist us with the hospital we are proposing to erect. He is a multimillionaire. He promised 2,500 pounds right away, 1,500 more when the sum of 23,500 had been raised, making thereby a total of 25,000 pounds with which building operations could be commenced. He is a young man, Sprightly and generous, I should think. I wanted him to make his promise, 5,000 in round figures. But he simply said, I cannot promise. We shall see. The following description of one Australian night ride may give some idea both of the eagerness of the people to hear him and of the amount of fatigue the general was able to endure. We left at 5 p.m., The journey was certainly unique in my history. Six or seven times in that night, or early morning, was I fetched out of my carriage to deliver addresses. The mayors of two of the towns were there to receive me, with crowds all placed in orderly fashion, with torches burning, everything quiet as death while I spoke, and finishing up only with the ringing of the departing bell of the train and the hurrahs of the people. At two in the morning at Wagga Wagga, of Tickborn fame, they fairly bombarded my carriage shouting, General Booth, won't you speak to us? Won't you come out? But I thought you could really have too much of a good thing. At another station, after speaking for the twenty minutes allowed for breakfast, a lady put through the window a really superb English breakfast, as good as ever I had in my life, with everything necessary for eating it, and, as we went off, she added, "'Mind, I am a Roman Catholic.' The reception at Sydney was enormous, they say never surpassed, and only equaled once at the burial of some celebrated oarsman who died on the way from England. They had arranged a great reception for him, and they gave it to his corpse. The enthusiasm of the meetings is Melbourne over again." The general's almost invariable escape from illness during so many years of traveling, in so many varying climates and seasons, can only be attributed to God's special guidance and care. In Melbourne, influenza raged in the home where he was billeted, and seized upon one of the officers traveling with him. And yet he escaped and could resume his journey undelayed. In South Africa, when he was seventy-nine, another of his companions in travel was separated from him for days by severe illness, but the general, in spite of a milder attack of the same sort, was able to fulfill every appointment made for him. Best of all, however, was the peculiarly blessed inward experience which he enjoyed amidst all the outward rush of the Australian tour it has been so often suggested by truly excellent men that the soul cannot enjoy all the fulness of fellowship with god without a great deal of retirement from men that we should like to have the general's inner life fairly exhibited if it were only in order for ever to bury this monstrous and we might also say blasphemous superstition which has so often been supported by one or two quotations from the gospel though in defiance of the whole story of christ and of every promise he ever made Of what value could a Savior be who drew back from helping his own messengers upon the ridiculous pretense that they were too busy doing his bidding and did not spend enough time seeking him for themselves? Just a P.S. to say that God is wonderfully with me. I don't think that I ever, in the midst of a great revival, had a more powerful time than last night. It was nothing short of a miracle. I had no definite line ready and had no time to get one. I preached an old sermon at Melbourne, just because I must have something straight before me that I could shout out to that immense crowd. And I had a wonderful time. But last night God helped me in every way. The power upon the people was really wonderful at times little did most of his own soldiers guess the extreme strain of inward weight and struggle under which the general was often labouring just when in some great assembly he appeared to everyone to be overflowing with youthful gaiety and self-confidence the following letter to his youngest daughter and some entries in his diary will give some idea of the inner victory he really gained on many such occasions Commissioner Lawley, mentioned in this letter, was the general's almost constant companion and helper in many years' travel in many lands, leading the singing, soloing, managing the prayer meetings, and generally aiding in every arrangement, a true armor-bearer and comrade at every turn. Fair night might have been better. Plenty of weakness, still better than it often is. Lolly just been in he's not over well says we have got the biggest theatre the empire he is not quite sure whether its suitability for talking is beyond the coliseum at glasgow but he thinks the meetings are rather heavy for a sick man whom four doctors have been conjuring during the week to settle down and take things quietly under pain and penalties of the sufferings described However, I am going on with faith that God won't forsake me. It is very probable that Mr. McDougall said something of the same kind when he retired to rest on his last sleep, and failing to appear in the morning, was found by his son with life extinct, gone to live by sight, anyway to have some further assistance to sight through his faith in the better land. This has been one of the most remarkable of the many remarkable days of my history. I passed a weary night and felt altogether unfit for the task before me. The natural force seemed to have passed out of me, both mentally and physically. In fact, my heart failed me, and there seemed nothing before me but the prospect of slackening down. I was only kept going by the memory of so many deliverances brought out for me in the past. We had one of the largest audiences, and the biggest crowd I ever addressed in a single day. In the morning, it appeared that Satan sat at my door, suggesting all sorts of discouraging things. He tried to make me believe that my public work was done, and especially suggesting that I should renounce the subject on which I was talking and wait for better days before I attempted to talk again. The prayer meeting that followed was certainly encouraging. We had 27 out. Still, I came away with very much the same feeling that had been aroused while I was talking. I took a little refreshment and tried to get a little sleep, but my mind was too much agitated to allow of it. I woke up and called for the notes of my lecture. My mind could not put two and two together hardly, and so I gave up in despair and left myself to my fate. On my way to the meeting, however, a strange feeling came over me. It was like the sun through a rift in the black clouds, and all at once a spirit of tenderness, hope, and faith came over me. A voice in my soul seemed to say, Go and do the Lord's work, and the people will gather. Go for their souls, and all will be well. I accepted the command. My fears vanished. A spirit of confidence took possession of me. I rose. I addressed the crowd for an hour and twenty minutes, with all the physical vigor and mental liberty I could desire. Night, a terrific crowd. I talked for an hour and ten minutes with the same force and fervor as in my most successful efforts. One hundred forty-seven came onto the stage in the after-meeting. It was thus in the smaller matters of personal strength and health, as in the greatest affairs, that the general struggled, believed, and triumphed all through his career. Australasia has gone further than most countries towards state socialism, but it was well remarked by some statesmen many years ago, we are all socialists now. No man within his times was more intensely devoted to the cause of the poor than William Booth. He was indifferent to no practical scheme or effort for the improvement of the people's condition in any land but for that very reason he loathed with uncommon vigour such socialism as would spurn and crush out of the world the man who is no longer in first-class physical condition or desirous of earning an honest living by hard work instead of going about to create hatred between man and man and would prevent those who will not submit to any man's dictation from leaving their families to starve when work is to be obtained the general's indignation was specially aroused when socialist spouters tried to block all his plans of beneficence with their foul misrepresentations he fought every such attempt with the utmost determination and by the help of god and the more intelligent of his fellow-countrymen crushed every such attack more completely than the public sometimes knew, for he resolutely kept out of any political or social agitation and went calmly on his way, even when his quietude led the enemy to imagine that he was yielding. In later years, when all the pressmen of a city came together to meet him, the Social Democratic paper representative would, of course, Come with the rest. On the occasion of such an interview once in Denmark, he writes, The Social Democrat usually contends himself by compassionating the inadequacy of my efforts for dealing with the miseries which they contemplate, with the remark that I don't go deep enough, that mine is a superficial operation, whereas they destroy poverty by dragging it up by the roots. My notion is that the principles upon which my efforts are founded carry me to the lowest roots of all, namely, the selfishness of human nature. Their notion is that capital is the root of the misery. Destroy the capital, or rather I expect they mean divide it up, or let everybody have the benefits that flow out of its possession. My notion is that the roots of the selfishness are to be found in human nature itself. End of section thirteen. Recording by Tom Hirsch.